Give the king your justice, O God, and your righteousness to the royal son. May he judge your people with righteousness and your people with justice. Let the mountains bear prosperity for the people and the hills in righteousness. May he defend the cause of the poor of the people, give deliverance to the children of the needy, and crush the oppressor. May they fear you while the sun endures and as long as the moon throughout all generations. Those are the first five verses of Psalm 72, which is the psalm appointed for today, Wednesday, July the 28th, 2021. You're listening to Faith Seeking Understanding, and I'm your host, John Green. Thanks for being along today. We're continuing our look at the life of David, and we're in 2 Samuel 3, verses 22 to 39. We are still in the book of Acts, in chapter 16, verses 16 to 24, and in the gospel according to Mark, the sixth chapter, 40, verses 47 to 56. So remember yesterday that David, had he had been king over only the tribe of Judah, while Ish-bosheth, the son of Saul, had been king over all the other tribes. And and then he made a mistake, Ishbosheth did. He offended Abner, the commander of his armies. He offended him by accusing him of going into his father's Ishbosheth's father's concubine. And and Abner said, Nope, we're done now. I'm going to give all of this into the hand of David. He met, went and met with the elders of all the other tribes, including the tribe of Saul, Benjamin, and then went to David and promised him this thing, that he would make him king over everything. So that's where we were. And remember what I said was is that Abner is the kingmaker here. He, he, he is, he's a threat at some level to David because he's the one who ultimately at this point has the power over all these other tribes. He's the one that puts the coalition together and makes this happen. And so when as he leaves, <coughs> Joab, the commander of David's army, are coming back from a raid, but Abner was not with David at Hebron because David had sent him away. Remember, he sent him away in peace. And then Joab went to the king and said, What have you done? Behold, Abner came to you. Why is it that you've sent him away so that he goes? You trusted him? You sent him away in peace? Why would you have done that? These people oppose you. You know that Abner, the son of Ner, came to deceive you and to know you're going out and you're coming in and to know all you're doing. And, and so Joab ascribes to Abner some nefarious motives, and there may have been some there. There may well have been, because, like I said, Abner was the kingmaker, and, and he had made Ishbosheth king, and then he decided to take it away from Ishbosheth because he did something that displeased Abner. And so now he's going to give that kingdom to David. But, but does David have control of that kingdom if Abner's the one who actually sets up the kingdom? Now, now, Joab is not accusing him of being that deceptive, I don't believe. He's accusing him of a much simpler sort of a deception. He's going to come and kill you kind of a deception. And so when, he come, when Joab leaves David's presence, he sends messengers out after Abner, and then they bring him back. And then when he returns to Hebron... Joab takes him aside in the midst of the gate to speak with him privately, the gate of the city, um, and, and takes him away from everybody else. So now you've got the two commanders of the two armies who are together, and there he strikes him in the stomach so that he died uh, in, <clears throat> for the blood of Asahel, Joab's brother, who had been killed by Abner in battle. 
And then David hears about it, and he says, What in the world have you done? I and my kingdom are forever guiltless before the Lord for the blood of Abner, the son of Ner. May it fall upon the head of Joab and upon all his father's house. And may the house of Joab never be without one who has a discharge or is leprous or who holds a spindle or falls by the sword or who lacks bread. I mean, David's placing a curse on the house of Joab for what he's done. He's placing that curse on them permanently for what he's done in killing Abner, and it's a great act of treachery. And that treachery could redound in a bad way back into the other 11 tribes to hear that that this guy has gone to give David the kingdom and the commander of David's army, Joab, has killed Abner in the gate of the city, right out in the open for all to see. <clears throat> so they then, now David has to call Joab and everybody else and say, Terror your clothes and put on sackcloth and mourn before Abner. So David declared this fast and this mourning before Abner so he could show everyone that he had nothing to do with this. And so they buried Abner there at Hebron. And the king lifted up his voice and wept at the grave of Abner, and the people wept. And then David mourns over him and, and, and says, in a lament, shall Abner, should Abner die as a fool dies? Your hands were not bound. Your feet will not fettered at one who falls before the wicked. You have fallen. And so all the people wept again over him. And then the people come to David that day, urging him to eat bread while it was still day. And David says, no, no. God do so to me and more also if I taste bread or anything else until the sun goes down. David's going to keep this fast. He, he's showing that this is not a pretend thing that he's doing. He's not, he's not doing this for show so that people will know that he didn't do it. No, he says, no, I, I really am doing this. And no, I really am in mourning. This is not a pretend thing. So they understood that day that it had not been the king's will to put to death Abner, the son of Ner. If David's going to be the king over all the tribes of Israel, then they need to know what kind of man he is. And David's showing them right here what kind of man he is. He's a man who, who will not allow injustice in his kingdom. And so the, he, he mourns and weeps over Abner and gives him a proper burial. He treats him as an honored hero, not as, um, as a treacherous man. And so he, he does the right thing, David does, in this instance. And, and that makes him even more popular among the people. Because they know that his hands are not stained with the blood of Abner. They know that he, David has dwelt righteously with this man. It was, it was not David. And David didn't give the order to do it either. Now David is not always, <laughs> doesn't always have clean hands like that, right? Not certainly not with um, Bathsheba and her husband Uriah the Hittite, but here David is consolidating the kingdom, and he needs that those other people to know, I didn't do this. I had no part in it. It was not me. Everything he does tells them that very thing, and it's important that we be people of our word, that we be righteous people, that we not deal with others treacherously, that we, we are the kind of people that can be trusted in business, the kind of people that can be trusted with our word, that we will do what we say we will do, and we will not uh, stab you in the back. We won't betray a confidence. We will not betray a friend. We will not betray anyone. And so in, in the gospel lesson, it's interesting, right? Because yesterday Jesus fed all these people and he sent the, the disciples away 
and to go by boat, and so they're on the sea, and Jesus dismisses the people, and then he goes to a solitary place where he can pray, and, and when evening comes, the boat is out on the sea, and he's alone on the land, and he saw they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them, so they're struggling with this, and about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. He meant to pass them by. I, there's something comical about that statement to me. So you, he looks and he sees the disciples struggling to get across on this boat. And, and Jesus walks on the water and and intends to walk right past them. <laughs> For whatever reason, that just always strikes me as incredibly comical that Jesus is going to walk right on by these guys who are struggling and working hard. But they saw him walking on the sea. They thought it was a ghost and cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I, don't be afraid. And he got into the boat with them. And the wind ceased. And they were utterly astounded, for they didn't understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. Again, here we go with the idea of the miracles um, being something other than miracles. They didn't understand about the lows, which means that they didn't understand that Jesus had this remarkable power to overcome the natural uh, and, and, and do the supernatural. And so, because that's the difference. Here he's overcoming the natural by overcoming the wind, and the wind is ceasing. And he's done this before. Remember, it hadn't been that long ago that he's in the boat, and he speaks to the wind and the waves, and they just subside. And they want to know, who is this that speaks to the wind and the waves, and they obey him. And so here Jesus is, has done all these things, and what it says is their hearts were hardened, which is to say that, that they just can't, be, they, they can't believe that, that there are things that are not too hard for Jesus. There are certain things that he, that he can't overcome. And, and when our hearts get hardened, we begin to miss things. We begin to misunderstand things, and we begin to miss things. And again, with the, what I mentioned yesterday was Barclay's commentaries, you know, that he said that, that what actually happened was Jesus uh, raised up those uh, five loaves and the two fish and blessed them and broke them and gave them to the people. But that wasn't what actually fed and sustained them that day. It was because they had their own little uh, baskets with food in them. And, and once they saw Jesus' faith, they all began to share with one another. That's Barclay's interpretation, um, which is to say that, that there was no miracle at all that occurred here today. It, it was just simply that people began to share spontaneously because of Jesus' faith. Well, here again, it, it is, when you say their hearts were hardened, they, they missed about the lows is what it said. Well, they didn't understand about the lows, and their hearts were hardened, so they didn't understand this either. And and what's interesting is is that with Barclay, his commentary on on these passages, um, like I said, he, I just gave you the interpretation he gives on the the lows and the fish. And here, what he says is he's not actually walking on the sea; he's walking near the sea. Well, with all these things, nobody's going to be terrified if they see Jesus walking near the sea and think that it's his ghost. In, a, in another version of, of this same story in, in the synoptics, it's that the, the wind is howling and there's a great storm around him and, and Jesus is telling him, don't worry about this and everything. And well, if that's the case and he's walking on the land near the sea, they don't have anything to worry about. <laughs> if they're close enough to hear him in the midst of the gale, then then they're on land. All they got to do is get off the boat, right? So here, that's exactly what the way Bar Barkley reads this, though. But, but it takes out all the miraculous, which means you've got a totally different Jesus at the end of the day than the one 
who, who the apostles proclaimed and, and the one that's been proclaimed by the church down the ages. We, you've got one who sort of just manipulates the natural a little bit and, and gets people to overcome their own fears. Um, so then they, they land at Gennesaret and they come on the shore. And then and as soon as they get there, everybody's heard about Jesus and they know everything about him. And so wherever he goes, they run around and they find all the sick and the lame and everything else and they bring them to him. And as many as touched it, the fringe of his garment were made well. And remember a couple of weeks ago, I talked about that whole idea of the fringe of the garment, the hem of the garment, why that's an important thing and why that's what they want to touch. Is the, it's where the power is. It's where the authority is. It, dis, it defines the, the man. And so the, the power is there. It's the presence of God with them. And so that's why they want to touch the fringe of his garment. But... It's this same thing that, that the witness of who Jesus is, like the witness of who David was in that first lesson, is dramatically important because we got to get it right. We have we have to have the proper testimony, and and Jesus shows here what the proper testimony is: is that he is the the ruler of the sea and the skies. He's ruler of the wind and the waves. He is he is in charge of everything, and he keeps his presence. Always. And remember in Acts, we had met Lydia yesterday. And so they, they in the place of prayer there in Philippi, uh, where they went on the Sabbath. And, and so this is later, obviously, where, where this action takes place. They're going to the place of prayer again. And they meet there a slave girl with a spirit of divination who brought her owner much gain by fortune telling. And she followed Paul and us, crying out, these men are servants of the Most High God who proclaimed to you the way of salvation. She kept doing this for many days, and Paul got annoyed by it and turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. Why would he do that? I mean, she's telling them the truth. She's telling the people the truth. She's, she's pointing in the right direction, but the problem is she's pointing by a wrong spirit, by the same kind of spirit that testified to Jesus whenever he confronted demons. And so this spirit is not of the Lord. And so it's an act of grace and mercy towards this girl that Paul does this, that he begs, that he does, he implores the Spirit to leave. I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her, and it came out of her that very hour. And it's because he's setting her free from a demonic oppression. Now, it, it, it gave her owners much money, and so they were not pleased that Paul had cut off their source of income from this slave girl and so they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, These men are Jews, and they're disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. Wait, that's not the reason you brought them into the marketplace before the rulers. The reason you brought them into the marketplace before the rulers was actually because it cut off your income. The hope of gain was gone. You're not offended by this. This is just the charge that you can bring to a kangaroo court and inflame the people against Paul and Silas. And it worked. The crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave them orders to beat them with rods. I mean, but the reality is, is that, that if, if they're Jews and they advocating customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice, that's not even true. Judaism was illicit, not an, not an illicit, but illicit religion in Rome. 
It was allowed because they didn't find in it anything that was um, contrary to, to the Roman belief system. They added it too. I mean, there were multiple licit religions in, in Rome and in the Roman Empire, and Judaism was one of them. And so what they're actually charging them with was not a crime. It wasn't a crime at all. But the people are, are there's a civic pride that, that has been appealed to, and it's going to happen again and again in the life of Paul, is, is that they know they can't get them into trouble because, well, it's costing us money for them to do these things it's you know there's a commercial issue involved here no they can't be that that's not a good enough charge to get people worked up about nope it's got to be something to do with civic pride we he's attacking us as human beings he, he's trying to introduce something that's foreign here in a way that that kind of indicates that who we are is lacking that this thing is better, and so that's what actually they get beaten with rods. I mean, Paul, it's amazing the stuff that this man has to go through. And so they inflicted many blows upon them. They threw him into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely, and having received the order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in stocks. So they're not just in prison. It's not like a Motel 6 where you could walk up to the door and walk out. No, they're in the inner prison. So they're, they're further embedded into this building, and then he fastened their feet with stocks. So it, just the witness of who somebody is, is is a wonderful thing, but the reality is if, if the, the spirit that prompts that witness is not of God, then we do have a problem, and we have a problem of misidentification, and, and so we can misidentify people because... We have that witness, and, and here what would have happened was is that, that I'm not sure who is the greater and the lesser. Is the greater the one who proclaims, or is the one who is greater the one who proclaims the proclaimer, as in this spirit that, that works through this girl? Is she the one who, who becomes the, the head of things? Are people looking to her for truth now, or are they looking to Paul? If they're looking to her for truth because she makes a proper identification and gives essentially a prophecy, then, then that's got to stop because the proclamation of Jesus is the only proclamation that matters.